one of the surprises is Ukraine has the second largest gas reserves in Europe after only Norway. Um, and that gas at today's price, which is an inflated price, but is, is about 1.3 to 1.4 trillion. And that number has been going up every few days we have this conversation. Um, they have uh, oil and condensate worth sort of finger math between three and $400 billion. A lot of that was already taken by Putin in the first attack in Crimea back in 2014 when he took Crimea and Sebastopol uh, and then put an uh, exclusive economic zone in the Black Sea and laid claim to those assets. It's got the sixth largest coal reserves in the planet, uh, which is very important for steel. It's very important for thermal coal, which fires the grid in, in a lot of the world. And, um, and that was attacked intensely by Putin through 2014, 2015, 2016. Uh, flooding mines, blowing up rail, etc. So he's had a focus on trying to destroy what he can acquire of the Ukrainian energy and asset base. We may have to develop a more sophisticated strategy than the one we currently have if, if we're taking comfort in the fact that the Ukrainians are putting up a good fight. That's clearly not going to be enough if he does fall back to a default setting, admits like we can all see that the first phase was a failure, uh, announces his success, but then falls back to a position where he dares us to come in and try and take it out of his hands and simply holds and exploits these resources and integrates them into the Russian supply chain. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Last week, an opinion piece written by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Brett Stephen ran in the New York Times titled, What If Putin Didn't Miscalculate? It posited that if you look at Russia's incursion into Ukraine as a mission to annex the country's world-class energy resources, it looks much more like a success than the bungled regime change failure it's frequently portrayed as in the media. And regardless of what the primary objective was, Russia is now in control of these critical resources. That could well be a game changer. How? To find out, I sit down here with David Knightleg, an energy expert whose input largely inspired the New York Times piece. This is one of the most fascinating and perhaps one of the most important to our future discussions I've yet had on this channel. So let's get right to it. David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today in what must be a very busy week for you, given all the media attention uh, to your your. Uh, thesis here. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us all the way from France, no less. Sure. No problem, Adam. Thanks a lot for uh, having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks. Thanks. Um, all right. Well, look, um, I want I to obviously drill into this uh, piece that came in uh, in the New York Times last week. Uh, the piece was titled, uh, What If Putin Didn't Miscalculate? Um, the piece cites a number of different uh, experts there. Uh, but here's the section where your name comes up in. Uh, so I'm just going to read this for a moment, folks. Suppose for a moment that Putin never intended to conquer all of Ukraine, that from the beginning, his real targets were the energy riches of Ukraine's east, which contain Europe's second largest known reserves of natural gas. Combine that with Russia's previous territorial seizures in Crimea, which has huge offshore energy fields and the eastern provinces, I'm going to murder these, of Luhansk, and uh, Donetsk, which contained parts of an enormous shale gas field, as well as Putin's bid to control most or all of Ukraine's coastline, and the shape of Putin's ambitions become clear. He's less interested in reuniting the Russian-speaking world 
than he is in securing Russia's energy dominance. And now we have some direct quotes here from you, David. Under the guise of an invasion, Putin is executing an enormous heist, says energy expert David Knight Leg. Okay, so that's the jumping off point I want to use here, David. Um, I mentioned a few of them there, but, but uh, you know, just talk for a moment about the scope and the scale of the Ukrainian resources that you think are of particular interest to Russia here, or may be of particular interest to Russia here. Sure, sure. So, so Ukraine is a surprise to a lot of people, including me, frankly. And I've spent a few years looking at oil and gas uh, with a particular lens from the government of Alberta, which has more oil than Russia, China, and the United States put together. Uh, and we're a free democracy. And one of the things that you find out very quickly in the energy business is that despotic states tend to have most of the energy, but democratic states tend to have the best production uh, results from smaller supplies. So the United States is number one in both oil and gas. Uh, Canada has got the third largest supply in the world, fourth largest, um, uh, third largest supply of oil, fifth largest producer of oil. Um, you know, we probably number 13, 14 in terms of gas supply, but we're the, we're the fourth largest producer in the planet of gas. And one of the things that, that we wanted to do was make sure that we could get gas into Europe. And so we looked at various ways that Europe accesses gas. And one of the surprises is Ukraine has the second largest gas reserves in Europe after only Norway. Um, and that gas at today's price, which is an inflated price, but is, is about 1.3 to 1.4 trillion. And that number has been going up every few days we have this conversation. Um, they have uh, oil and condensate worth sort of finger math between three and $400 billion. A lot of that was already taken by Putin in the first attack in Crimea back in 2014 when he took Crimea and Sebastopol uh, and then put an uh, exclusive economic zone in the Black Sea and laid claim to those assets. It's got the sixth largest coal reserves in the planet, uh, which is very important for steel. It's very important for thermal coal, which fires the grid in, in a lot of the world. And, um, and that was attacked intensely by Putin through 2014, 2015, 2016, uh, flooding mines, blowing up rail, et cetera. So he's had a focus on trying to destroy what he can acquire of the Ukrainian energy and asset base, and mineral base. And I think that what we're seeing right now is, it's not that, that his, the things that he told us about himself that we know are true is that he hated NATO expansion. He hates democracy in the Ukraine. And he's an ethnic nationalist and wants to unify kind of linguistic and ethnic Russian population. Those are the things he's told, told us about himself. Those are the things we know to be true about him. But when he took Crimea, very similar to what happened with Hitler taking Sudetenland in 1938, you know, that ethnic national backdrop was used as justification to seize very strategic territory that also had a very strong resource base. And so the argument, which Brett does a great job of, of sort of outlining that he and I had talked about. Uh, leading into that article was that Putin is capable of, I think, having made a mistake in his attack on Kiev and other things. I don't think that was, a, you know, um, a feint. I don't think he was trying to fake that. I think he thought that he would see Kiev topple the same way that Crimea toppled, that it would be a short, sharp smash and grab operation. And it's turned out that Western support plus the Ukrainian army have been very effective at stalling him out and, and uh, really damaging his, his army. 
But if you look at the way the map is set up right now, you'll see that he's fully embedded across the Donbass, which is, which is where those two regions sit that have the deep energy resources. Uh, sort of 50% of the coal is just in Donetsk. Um, uh, huge shale gas and gas reserves there. Luhansk, and then if you come down through the Ukraine, uh, you'll see that he's focused very heavily on attacking Mariupol, which is the port city that goes into Azul Sea through the Kerch Strait out to the Black Sea. And this is absolutely essential for him to be able to link Russia through that area to Crimea, the assets that he already took back in 2014. So enormous asset base. I think there's three or four reasons why he's doing it that we can get into, but the scale of those assets are very important, not in some kind of grand global sense. You know, there's larger oil producers, there's definitely larger uh, gas supply, but in terms of the proximate, uh, proximity to the European countries that are the primary um, uh, buyers of this gas. It's very important. And for Putin, it's very important because he's not only taking a very valuable resource, he's taking it away from a country that he wants to subjugate. And for the Ukraine, it's very hard to see an economic future without those resources and without that entire uh, Black Sea, Sea of Azul access and ports. He's, he would have effectively landlocked the country and taken its most valuable assets away from them. Okay, um, really interesting here. So, uh, you know, it sounds like there are multiple reasons, some stated, maybe some unstated, why the Russian incursion into Ukraine happened when it did. Um, the, it, it doesn't necessarily need to have been done for one single reason, is what I heard you say. And, um, you know, there are multiple outcomes, right, of what may happen here. Um, you know, one could have been a total quick subjugation of, of Ukraine and, you know, maybe that would have given Putin some additional options. Seems but like his initial intent, clearly. Right. Yeah. Sort of a lightning strike, catch everything by surprise, have it be a quick, you know, several day war and be done. Um, uh, but if not, it sounds like maybe in the back of his mind was, look, if that doesn't happen quickly, I've got sort of multiple fallback options and maybe, maybe you know, sort of my last most fundamental one at the base of that choice pyramid is, you know, I can I can stop the military operations and I can retreat, but I can hold on to these energy rich provinces that border Russia anyways, so I can fortify them, you know, well. And it's going to be really hard for what's left of Ukraine to try to wrest that back from us, um, because probably the rest of the, of the West is not going to risk military, you know, a full blown military escalation to try to take those back from Russia by force. Um, is that sort of a fair way to summarize it? Very fair way to summarize it. And he's done it before in Crimea. And I think the so interesting thing, yeah, there's precedent. And the interesting thing, Adam, is look what he did in Crimea. He used the exact same logic for why he was doing what he did. Um, you know, frustration with the discussion around NATO, frustration with US involvement and interventions in the Maidan Revolution 2014, frustration with the, the fact that Yanukovych had been toppled and that he had lost somebody that he'd put in place and he was seeing the effects of you know, uh, a more open democratic uh, process taking hold. And he obviously doesn't want that slipping over the border. And, you know, but all that backdrop basically resulted in, in him taking Sevastopol uh, and Crimea, seizing all of the Black Sea assets, effectively 80% of their oil and gas in the Black Sea, and handing the NAFTA gas assets to Gazprom, and then, you know, and so he learned a few, I think, probably the wrong lessons in terms of how quickly he was able to secure Crimea and, and probably applied that lesson to his attempt to take 
take Ukraine and Kiev. But he also learned another lesson, which is that the West soon forgets and Europe was lined up to buy his oil, including the stolen oil, within a year. You know, the, we were right back in, into the market as buyers. And so I think uh, if you look at his national interest, why he would want to take these things, both to have the value of those assets and also to be able to take uh, something away from the Ukraine. Um, if you look at his treatment of Mariupol, which is that essential land bridge, and you look at uh, what he's done with the annexation of Crimea in the past, you have a you have sort of a clear kind of precedent and motive. All right. Um, uh, well, so as you're saying, look, you know, we've, we've seen this game plan before. So, again, just sort of sort of to iterate this New York Times piece that came out, it said, look, there's, you know, a narrative going on right now in the Western media that that Putin is one of these, you know, out of touch, uh, uh, you know, uh, authoritarian rulers, uh, totally overestimated his military's might and made a big strategic error going into Ukraine. Maybe that is true. You know, it could be true. We don't know. But I think the article is saying, but perhaps not, right? Perhaps there was a lot more sort of chess strategy that went into this. And at the end of the day, you know, Putin may be willing to sacrifice some parts of Ukraine right now where there's still ongoing hot military action um, to be able to end up securing, you know, these contiguous uh, resource risk elements that we're talking about. I also really quick just want to cite an article that came out, I think, right after uh, that piece in The New York Times. Um, and it was an interview with Sergei Karaganov, um, who is a former advisor to the Kremlin. And he's basically saying that uh, Russia is going to need to demonstrate some kind of win out of this relatively soon. Um, and he thinks that uh, that's going to be claiming, hey, we've recaptured the, the Donbass and that's now part of Mother Russia again, um, which to me, that sort of feels like it plugs into what you're saying here, David. Yeah, look, I think I think that, you know, the debate that that, you know, Brett, who wrote the article in The New York Times and I were having um, and, and some others were participating in at a conference. The point that I was making is we make a mistake, A, if we just hold to the characterization that Putin has give us, given us as to his motives, you know, B, um, we make a mistake if we assume that there aren't multiple layers in his motives and in his strategy. And see, we make a mistake if we don't assume that that strategy will be adaptive with new information. And so I think what, you, what you've seen is, you know, I, I, there was somebody that was saying, look, he's bogged down. He's going to be suffering from urban guerrilla warfare for the next 10 years, trying to hold the Ukraine, uh, these urban centers in the Ukraine. It's going to be impossible for his army and they're all conscripts and, you know, they're fearful going home. And the point I was making is if, if you can see that, then I'm sure that he can see that. And if he can see that, what is a rational actor, not a good actor, a rational actor supposed to do? And this isn't an argument that there was some sort of, you know, mastermind ledger domain that he's sort of baiting and switching us by, you know, sacrificing thousands of his soldiers to a, to a mistaken strategy. I think that there's every likelihood that strategy is completely mistaken. The more important thing is what do we think that he does next and why do we think that he does it? And I think that there's a strong case to be made if you look at the position of his army, you look at the actions that he's been taking, particularly if you look at what he's done to Mariupol. And just, just to pause at Mariupol for a second, this is the most pro-Russian city in all of Ukraine. And yet he's pounding it into dust, right? And the, the, 
you know, that's an odd way to try and reunify an ethnic and linguistic community if that's the plan, right? It's an entirely, uh, uh, you know, Machiavellian um, tactical way to secure the land bridge that he's desperate for to his Crimean assets and to lock up 80% of the Black Sea, uh, Sea of Azul and all the key ports, right? And so I think when you, when you start to look at these different pieces of his campaign and how it's operating, it makes eminent sense to think that there's a good possibility that what he's doing is very similar to what he did previously in Crimea. He's stealing as much as he can of Ukraine. And by taking it, he's going to leave them hamstrung uh, economically for decades, potentially. And, and it sets up a, a different kind of problem for us in the West than the one that we think is just him failing. And we get to watch him fail from afar when we provide weapons, right? Like we may have to develop a more sophisticated strategy than the one we currently have if, if we're taking comfort in the fact that the Ukrainians are putting up a good fight. That's clearly not going to be enough if he does fall back to a default setting, admits like we can all see that the first phase was a failure, uh, announces it as a success, but then falls back to a position where he dares us to come in and try and take it out of his hands and simply holds and exploits these resources and integrates them into the Russian supply chain. Um, you know, there's two other things I'll say, and please stop me any, any time, I, you know, but I've got a lot on my mind on this. You know, one of the very this interesting- This is all good. Okay, well, one of the very interesting things strategically to think about is why is India not participating with the other democracies uh, in sanctioning Russia? What's happening there? It's a very interesting situation, right? And I think what you've seen is that Putin has done a very effective job of saying, look, Europe is a really important market for me. And they're currently paying me $100 billion a year right now, $100 billion for their energy, right? But there are 3 billion people in the two largest marketplaces for energy in the planet. One's China and the other one's India. And I am locking them up and I'm doing everything they need me to do to make sure I hold on to them. And so what he's doing is he's creating a scenario where India and China don't get along. Europe is sort of an outlier, but he's going to have enormous leverage in his relationships to three massive marketplaces, the three largest marketplaces for energy in the planet that he supplies into. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to interrupt you here, but I just want to underscore you're taking this conversation exactly in the direction I wanted to take it. Right. So Wealthion, it's, it's a wealth building channel. It's a financial resilience channel. It's not a, a political commentary channel. Um, it's not a geo, you know, strategic channel from a geopolitical standpoint. So why did I want to bring you on? It's because of the economic and and just sort of you know existential repercussions of what might be going on here right now. If indeed Putin isn't a buffoon, and it's just not a matter of just waiting a few weeks, months for him to fail and slink back, you know, with his tail tucked between his legs. If he ends this with those resources and he's playing this 3D chess where you're talking about, where he is going to the other major uh, players on the map now and saying, look, um, let's, you know, let's let's uh, reinvest uh, in, in our alliances here and perhaps break some of these longstanding other alliances on the chessboard. Things get very different potentially going forward from here. So you mentioned India, you mentioned China briefly and, you know, relationships between or the relationship between China and the U.S. right now isn't the best it's always been. Um, and a lot of the things that, you know, I'm sure China is looking at what's happening to Russia right now, you know, particularly like the freezing of Russia's foreign reserves and whatnot, and, and sort of the, you know, very draconian uh, trade embargoes that are being put in place and saying, 
hey, you know, the U.S. and I don't always see eye to eye, and I might be on the receiving end of some of that at some point in time. So um, how, I got a number of questions here, but I guess let me, since we're on this topic, let me ask this one. How uh, impactful do you think what's going on right now is going to be in redrawing some of these uh, global trade alliances? Look, I think it's, I think that it is, um, the beginning of a tectonic shift in how trade is working out. There are, and you know, um, where I'm from in Canada, there's this phrase, dumb like a fox, you know, which is sort of, he doesn't have to be a brilliant strategist. He just has to have his own self-interest completely in hand to be forging relationships with the two largest energy demand nations in the planet, uh, China and India. By the way, on this, on this point, um, and especially because the focus is on wealth management, wealth creation, you know, one of the points that I've made uh, several times when I'm talking to people about what's happening with climate. So climate has been a big focus, right? And it's been a focus in some financial institutions on environmental social governance screens on investing in fossil fuels, ESG. And this was something that I had to take in hand because I'm a former banker and I spent a lot of time in Europe talking about why the Europeans were putting ESG related bans on the oil sands of Canada, in spite of the fact that our average barrel is cleaner than a barrel from California, Adam, but also, uh, also cleaner than that. Yeah, it is. It is. It used to be dirtier. Now it's cleaner. And that's because free market, free enterprise companies create innovations that clean fuels make the world a better place and share values that we have as democratic values. In fact, fun fact, 80% of global oil is held in despotic states and national owned companies. It's not held in democracies. Only 20% of global oil is held in democracies. And the big difference is what we do in democracies is we let free enterprise, shareholder led, governed free market companies do all of the exploration, do all of the production, do all the refining, do all the product development, take that gas molecule and turn it into Nikes and North Face jackets and tennis rackets and Lululemons. That's what we do as a free enterprise society, right? We take our gas, we turn it into the interior of every Tesla, right? And then we take our gas yep. and we replace, we replace coal on the grid and now our Teslas run on natural gas through the grid instead of coal through the grid, right? So, so we, we create a enterprising society that grows and innovates and uses energy to do thousands and thousands of things Meanwhile, over in the despotic countries, they use energy as a weapon. They use it to fill their coffers. They don't innovate. Look at Venezuela, largest reserves on the planet. They don't, they don't innovate. They don't do anything. They actually let the entire productive capacity decline and fall into the water there. Uh, and I'd love for the Greenpeace crowd that loves to be in Alberta and, and the U.S. protesting, try protesting Venezuela or Russia, where they're actually destroying the environment once. But, you know, what we see happening now is the result of free market Western democracies like Germany that shut down their own production, going cap in hand to dictators for their energy, their oil and gas, instead of to the democracies for their oil and gas. And what you see happening in China and India has another layer to it. And I think this is really important. China and India are engaged in, I think, the greatest single movement in human history, which is the movement of uh, almost 2 billion people out of grinding poverty into the middle class. And that's been happening for the last 25 years off the back of the adoption of Western liberal capitalist ideas like open trade, 
IP, a bunch of other things, not always acknowledged and protected in those countries, but the prosperity that's been created by global trade has resulted in several hundred million people in China, several hundred million people in India emerging into the middle class. And that is why if you look at any curve of global emissions, you'll see that Chinese and Indian emissions have skyrocketed. Well, the US emissions have dropped by 20, over 20% in the last 20 years. That's another thing that I'm just floored that people don't understand. The US has done more to decarbonize the planet than any country in history. And they've done it principally by substituting thermal coal for gas in the electric grid, but they did it by producing that gas through fracking. The rest of the planet is desperate for gas and without gas, they rely on coal. And that's what's causing global emissions to rocket. Emissions have dropped in the US, stayed flat in Canada and dropped in Europe significantly. Now they dropped in Europe because Europe said, we love what America is doing, we're green too. And we're gonna also drop our emissions. In fact, we're gonna do one better than the Americans. We're gonna drop our emissions by getting rid of our coal and relying on gas, but we're not gonna produce the gas inside our own countries. We're gonna offshore that. So we don't even have production emissions. You know, Now we just buy whatever we need and we use it and we look super green. And then we're gonna take excess capital through the government, not through free enterprise, free market, but we're gonna use the government to try and create false incentives to create wind energy. And as that failed last summer, you saw gas spike 500% for the Germans, right? And the reliance on Russia grew. And now you have a situation where by not producing energy inside these democratic nations, you know, mistake number one, mistake number two is by not relying on the energy. If you don't want to produce it, at least buy it from democracies that share your values. Mistake number two is not buying it from the free enterprise, free market, democratic institutions. They create all the innovation and all the good stuff from these things and share your values and are accountable and transparent. You start buying it from Vladimir Putin then you can bet that when there's a war in the Ukraine and you say, we're going to sanction you, he says, you're going to pay me in the two banks of my choice, in the currency of my choice, every single day on time, $30 billion to date since I started this war. And you're going to keep paying me until I tell you, I want you to stop paying me. And Europe is trying to rattle a saber, but the saber is non-existent. They're rattling a butter knife right now. There's not, no one's interested in what the Europeans think at the moment because they've sold their sovereignty effectively by embracing greenness and not embracing any kind of rationality around what oil and gas is and does for them, including the fact that gas, which they call a fossil fuel, and actually I like calling it a hydrocarbon because it does more than fuel things, right? It's the basis for 90% of what all the hipsters wear every day, right? Uh, <laughs> there's sunglasses and their makeup too, by the way, and half the medicine and you know, it's all kinds of things. I was like, you know, almost everything we needed to use in COVID was created by gas polymers, you know? So, so the whole, the whole uh, situation I think we find ourselves in ties up a bunch of different things about the story that we've told ourselves about the planet, the story we've told ourselves about decarbonization, things we've thought were true about something like gas, where actually it's been the principal way that we've decarbonized the planet. And the reason that there's a realignment happening is because democracies like Canada and the United States are not filling the gap. We're not filling the need. We have the capacity to provide China with the gas that it needs to offset its use of thermal coal, which would A, create powerful soft power relationships to them on a commercial basis, instead of this you know, silly verbal uh, process all the time. B, it would create extraordinary commercial opportunities in the trillion dollar level in that relationship. 
see it would be great for the planet because you do in China, what we've already seen happen in the United States, what we've seen happen in Europe. Same thing with India, which we're even closer to and have a better relationship with. Same thing with Korea, Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam, and some of these other nations that are also needing to use coal in light of the fact that they can't get the low cost gas landed in the way they should from these democracies. So the number one way I think we push back on Putin is we start to you know, produce more energy and ship it to the places that need it more. Because what India is doing is not about values. What India is doing is about survival and about making sure they have enough energy on their grid to provide the next couple hundred million people this decade that are coming out of poverty and need lights, electricity, heat. Uh, that was super eloquent in terms of making a complicated topic actually very understandable here. And I agree with you. I think in, in many ways, the energy story is likely the most important story of the rest of our lives, basically, I think in terms of what's going to define kind of how the world uh, operates and, and the decisions that the you know, major nations of the country make are all at the end of the day going to come back to energy in some way, shape or form. Um, you said so many things there that um, I'd love to dive into. A couple of great quotes. Um, one, uh, the EU rattling a butter knife uh, versus a saber where it, it put itself in this position, um, sort of like the US with its you know manufacturing, right, where it uh, when everything's working fine, it's it's highly efficient uh, and and highly profitable, but it is highly brittle. Um, it's highly vulnerable, and when a spanner gets thrown in the works, um, it it breaks down catastrophically. And you just did a great job of explaining how the Germans went from, you know, very affordable clean energy to now basically going cup in hand to uh, to you know what they would many of them consider a despot. Um, uh, and in such that way, you said they sold their sovereignty. And I think that is the that is the challenge that many countries are facing uh, on this issue now. You know, energy uh, is what the world runs on. It, it's what powers economies and it's not evenly distributed around the world. So control of and access to that energy is really going to define, you know, what happens from here. So, so many questions. But when you talk about um, uh, you know, hey, we should be selling, you know, providing more gas to these big players like China and, and India. And that's the way to both sort of address our climate goals, um, but also uh, strengthen these relationships and, and diminish Russia's potential appeal to them and whatnot. What is what obstacles are standing in the way of that right now? Well, I mean, this is a this is a channel committed to wealth creation. So, and I was just in the government for three years, but the government is usually the obstacle to most. Uh, you know, I, I think that what happens is there are, are um, conflicting values and conflicting goals, right? We want, we want greener and cleaner energy, but right now in the West, there's been uh, a tendency to want to use the state to overregulate the free enterprise, free market development of energy, uh, when those companies are competing with despotic states with sovereign backers who don't pay any attention at all to the environment or the social and governance values. And both those entities are competing for the marketplaces around the world that absolutely require energy. And I had a conversation with a, you know, a friend of mine who's a banker, he's the CFO of one of the top 10 banks globally. And he and I had worked together. And um, in my new incarnation as somebody that was working in government, which was brand new to me, I came back to help my friend get elected as premier of this energy-rich province and to work on the finances and, and the uh, trading and investment relationships. But what I found was 
these guys had made a decision at a board level to start withdrawing from fossil fuels. And we had a fascinating conversation because we had both had exposures to doing deals across Asia. And I said to him, how do you go in any good conscience, how do you go to an impoverished company like Bangladesh, country like Bangladesh, that's trying to rebuild its society, that's working very hard to get people out of poverty, that's desperate to trade with anybody that will give them the resources they need to support their citizens. And you go polishing your halo as a massive bank saying there's no possible way that you can fund coal because coal is horrible. I'm like, what, do you, what are their alternatives, right? Right, and sorry to interrupt, but, but it, it's very hypocritical to say, well, you can't do what we did that made us great. That's right. right? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make a you know, pro-burning fossil fuels, but I am making a, hey, we're totally addicted to them comment. But you know, like it or not, you know, the, the strength of the West was built on hydrocarbons, as you said. And so to be able to turn around to these guys and say, well, yeah, we benefited from it, but you can't, you know, is very hypocritical in their eyes. It's hypocritical and it's often anti-scientific. You know, it's often just, just a terribly misinformed, naive perspective, right? Most people's Teslas are running on coal. Right, right. right. You, you've heard the like, sh sh show me a windmill that's been constructed without using fossil energy inputs. Right. Yeah, well, well, you plug your Tesla into the electrical grid, the electrical grid is plugged into the coal-fired plants that create the energy that provides your Tesla with its electricity, right? But to right. make that Tesla battery that's gonna hold that energy, you have to move 500,000 tons of earth. You've gotta mine a lot of rare minerals. Right, and, and that's all done to, with hydrocarbons. <laughs> it's all done with, with massive, huge, you know, 20 ton cat tractors all over the planet, often in water distressed places at a huge cost to the planet, huge cost in terms of carbon emissions, just to do the mining and extraction itself a huge environmental problem around tailings, right? Now, I like, I, I love Elon Musk as an example of a great entrepreneur and what, what I think America creates that makes it such an extraordinary place in, in the world and in human history, right? Love it. I love everything that, that uh, he represents. But let's be realists about what the cost of a Tesla is and what the cost of a normal hydrocarbon combusting energy engine is, right? And those costs are not that distinctive in terms of cost to the planet. In fact, it takes a long time for a Tesla to break even if you match it up against an Audi A6, right? So I've looked at this math. I think it's six or seven years before the Tesla starts to, to cross the wire. And we've got a big issue with what are we going to do with these mountain of, of you know, heavy metal waste from these batteries, right? Now, I believe in innovation because I love free markets and I believe that we're going to see solutions to these things. I think that, that you don't bet against the ability to keep coming up with engineering problems as we progress and then figure out how to solve those. I think soon we'll have recyclable batteries, soon we'll be doing things differently in a, in a way that would allow for uh, different kinds of compounds to be used to create that energy. I'm, I'm bullish on heavy lift capacity for the hydrogen molecule, for instance. There's a lot of good things going on. I love small modular nuclear. All this stuff is gonna come from free enterprise, free market, entrepreneurial, societies that are free, democratic, and embrace the Western ideas of openness and ideas and trade and ideas and trade and goods and services. And so the principal barriers to that are bad ideas, uh, like the ones that lead us to, to reduce our capacity as free democracies to create the energy that the world needs, especially in the case of gas or in the case of nuclear, that would actually result in decarbonizing the planet from its addiction to thermal coal, which is the biggest single problem that we're facing right now. In 2021, 
China built five times the coal-fired capacity of the rest of the world combined. Yeah. Five times the coal-fired capacity of the rest of the world combined. And we had COP26 on, and I was giving a talk at the Bloomberg uh, New Energy Conference, which is a lot of trust fund guys wearing super fancy suits in London who love new energy and green investment. And so I was the guy that I think the president of Bloomberg put up there to spice it up a little bit, you know? And so, and I said, LNG is ESG. There's no way around it. If you can't embrace LNG, you don't really embrace ESG. And of course, you know, some people lost their minds and said, who's this Viking from Alberta that kind of stomped on stage and is talking oil and gas. Didn't he get the memo? This is all about new energy, right? But the point to these guys is, show me the wind molecule or solar molecule that you can ship to Bangladesh. Right. You can't, you can't, right? Show me, show me the small modular nuclear ship there. Hey, it's too preliminary for that. We're not ready for that yet. Okay, we're love, we love hydrogen at this conference, fantastic. Have you talked to Air Products or Linde Corp or any of the people with the 60,000 engineers that have dealt with the hydrogen molecule for the last 40 years in industrial applications? Because if you think you can solve for collision on heavy trains, you better make sure you've got pretty good engineers on that or you're sending H-bombs through the middle of large urban centers, right? Like you've got to solve these things. It can't just be a Twitter thing or somebody that got, uh, you know, a sustainability officer from a European bank getting really excited over whether or not that hydrogen is going to be blue or green, which was a real debate at this conference. And obviously I represent the blue side. We're going to extract hydrogen from the gas molecule, just the way we extract half the people's, you know, Nikes and sunglasses from the basketball. So, so you know, th this is the kind of situation that I think we're in. Bad ideas, even well-meaning ones, and sometimes especially well-meaning ones, have meant that Western democracies have tied one hand behind their back, A, in competing with despotic states like Russia, or B, in overly relying on them by believing that this transition to green energy sources will happen faster than it can. 30 years from now, there is no scenario Zero. No scientist will tell you there's any scenario 30 years from now where there is not a significant proportion, at least 40% of the fuel mix that's at least 40% oil, let alone gas. Right. And that's population growth, economic growth. I mean, we're just seeing the, the emissions rocket because we're bringing another two and a half billion people into an emerging middle class that's far more energy intensive. Right. And, and just on that point, you know, so that's roughly one in four people on the planet. Right. And as they as they enter more middle class lifestyle, you know, uh, they have a greater energy demand. Right. Their energy demand per capita is going up. Right. So even if population were to stay flat, which it's not going to, you take one out of every four people to a higher energy per capita living status you know, it's going to dramatically drive demand for energy, right? And that's what you're talking about with, you know, both the demand curve and the emissions curves that we're seeing going here. And of course, you know, we're still going to have population growth on top of this, particularly in those countries, right? So um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a challenge that is going to need to be met. And the question is just, okay, so how are we going to do it, right? And if I can boil down a lot of what you're saying is, is what's really tripping us up, at least in the West, um, is misguided policies. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like a lot of the current ESG mandates, however nobly intentioned, you know, may be having lots of unintended consequences that are going to make the problem that we're facing here 
worse because we're basically spending too much time, you know, here where time is so valuable over the, the long haul, um, focusing on things that aren't really terribly realistic, right? And I think, you know, what's happened in, in Germany and the EU at large with energy right now is a classic example of that. But I, I fear that if we don't, that light bulb doesn't go off in our head soon, that we maybe need to be revisiting these policies. That may be just one and maybe even a relatively small one compared to what might be coming down the pipe in the next decade or two. Yeah, Adam, you're absolutely right. I think that I think that the goals that we have of creating cleaner fuel sources, greener fuel sources need to be combined with the goals that we have of being able to make sure that a kid in Bangladesh or a kid in Indonesia or a kid in China or India has the same chance to turn on the lights, do some homework in air conditioning, get out of grinding poverty and be able to join, you know, a, a working uh, society with a prosperous middle class. That's good for everybody. It's great for world peace. It's great for, uh, you know, that kid and, and those lives. And part of what we have to be honest about is that there is a battle for the values that shape the kind of world we want to live in. And Vladimir Putin doesn't share the same values that we do. And there's reasons why not. And it's, you know, it's, it's uh, you, you can't just sort of take a completely morally relativistic view of these things. And there's also a, um, a hierarchy of those values. And I think that having a green planet is important, but being completely naive about the fact that cutting off the ability of the only companies that I believe have the capability of creating the new energy future we want, having only those companies dealing with these onerous additional regulatory and ESG burdens is crazy, right? You know, listening to some of the chief executives of some of these massive funds that get pension money saying that they're gonna cut off all access to fossil fuels, including gas is just not, it's, it's ridiculously naive, it's completely unscientific, but it also is just giving away entire markets to despotic states that have completely different view of the kind of planet that our kids will inherit than, than we do. And to do that uh, without doing the extra work to understand that for those countries, First of all, they're not going to follow the pattern of a Larry Fink at BlackRock, right? They're not interested. Uh, they have already weaponized their gas. You know, um, it, in the 70s, OPEC made it clear that they're not going to take instructions from the United States. We had to live through that period, right? Uh, Putin is making it clear he's not taking instructions right now. Um, you've got Iran, uh, shockingly to me, uh, it, throughout this war, the Biden administration has had Russian diplomats acting as emissaries between Iran and the United States diplomats in Vienna throughout the entire course of this war. That, that to me, as an ally, uh, you know, is absolutely stunning to hear, right? That is we kind of brain-bending, yeah. We have enough guys to do that. They sent emissaries down to Venezuela, right? In the middle of it, in fact, until mid-April, the United States is, is buying exactly the same amount of oil from Russia every day, just over 800,000 barrels, that we would have given to the United States through the KXL pipeline. They're buying it on seaborne traffic, which is far worse for the climate and far less secure from a despotic state that the entire time we're rattling the saber on sanctions, the $100 million is going out from US-based institutions to Russians, right? So, so for someone for, that, that grew up in a democracy, my dad was an immigrant, realized how great it was, was educated down in the States, 
by some Americans that gave me a scholarship, right? I love the United States and Canada. I believe that these two countries can turn the dial on global energy because we have enough of it to do it. The United States is number one in both. We're number four in gas, number five in, in oil, right? North America, we can do Fortress North America. We can provide a great energy alternative to anybody that thinks that they have to deal with Iran, Venezuela, China, or Russia, right? And have their country held hostage. The second those despotic states decide that they wanna do the wrong thing, they will do the wrong thing. If you do business with Canada and the United States, right? You're dealing with free market, free enterprise countries that don't speak on behalf of their governments and don't operate on a short leash to their governments. They're not proxy warriors for a government, right? They operate with openness around trade because those are our values. And that's why we've created marketplaces like that. So energy is a very interesting industry to look at and see the difference between what happens if an industry is created in a free market, free enterprise society, the way that that society creates freedom and articulates it through an economic system versus the way that a despotic state utilizes energy, both as a source of funds for their despotic endeavors and usually their hegemonic regional ambition and the way they use it to weaponize all the relationships they have geopolitically. And now that we're living through seeing what they do when they get a chance to weaponize it, it should be a warning shot not to go cap in hand to Iran and get Russia to broker it or go cap in hand to Venezuela and the sick Maduro dictatorship, what they do to people, right? It's time to get the Canadians and Americans together saying, hey, let's build some infrastructure Let's open up a regulatory platform that means that we can create a fortress North America solution that can give this energy that everybody so desperately needs as another billion and a half people come out of poverty that's currently rocketing the emissions. And let's get that into Asia. Let's get that into Europe so that people don't have to rely on the alternative sources from Putin. That's the number one way to push back against a thief. Steal his market away from him. David, this is one of the best conversations about energy I've had, and I've had a lot over the past 10 years. Um, if you're game forward, I would love to have you back on this channel at some point in the future to go into the positive side of the policies, the technologies, et cetera, that we you know, could and perhaps should be using to you know, change this from kind of a existential threat to an existential opportunity uh, for the world going forward. Um, we don't have enough time to do that discussion justice here. So I want to go get back to just a few questions here as we begin to land the plane. Um, as we've mentioned a couple of times, this is a channel about wealth building. Um, obviously, the implications of what's going on in Ukraine right now are worsening a lot of the commodity shortages that we had slammed into because of COVID and all the supply chain disruptions and whatnot going on there. Um, because right now it's uncertain how things are going to end in Ukraine. And it sounds like from what you're saying is, is, you know, we may end this process with, with rejiggered uh, trade routes around the world and, and doing business with some, but not with others going forward. Um, what's your outlook right now for commodity prices? Do you, do you see them after this? Let's assume that, that, there's a ceasefire in the Ukraine, hopefully soon, as we look maybe six months down the road. Will things equilibrate back to where they were before? Or do you think that we're at a, at a new baseline now, given the new volatility, uh, new alliances, and just new uncertainty and distrust in the world? That's it. I mean, that's a great question. 
Don't click away just yet, folks, because if you'd like to read the article that inspired this interview, What If Putin Didn't Miscalculate, you can get it for free by going to Wealthion.com leg. That's L-E-G-G. I'll also put a link to it in the description of this video below. Our interview with David will continue over in part two, which will be released tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. And last, if the turbulent geopolitical outlook David has detailed in this interview has got you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your portfolio, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio, keeping in mind the trends and risks that David has mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. All right, I'll see you next in part two of our video interview with David Knight Legg. Thank you.